Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast extra from a uh, very sunny Tottenham in North London. I am joining Dax Linier in his brand new studio, is that fair to say? Absolutely is, absolutely. Um, thanks for inviting me over. My the pleasure. place looks amazing. Let's rewind a little bit though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am picking up from your dulcet tones, you're not a local of North London. No, an Antipodean, you could say. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so I was born in Australia. Uh, my mother's German, my father's French. I was born in Australia, raised there. And, um, uh, yeah, always had a passion for music, always had a passion for um, creating things in, in all different forms. And uh, I think those two, for me, just coincide perfectly at, uh, at uh, audio engineering. So. Are you a player first and foremost, or I, were you? I, I have, I'm a drummer, just like you. I'm guilty of the same sin, um, and uh, it was it was something. That I guess it was the first um, uh, first musical thing that I got into in terms of uh, Let's not performance. Contradiction in terms there, possibly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it started with that, and then um, uh, I, I, like I said, always had this interest in in technology and and uh, and music, and so I was. Um, about 14 I built my first little two-channel microphone preamp and then uh, I was recording my friends bands in high school and um, it just it just kind of went from there I was uh, I'd always I worked all through high school I was um, uh, I had a weekend job I did every single every single day for every single weekend for uh, for six years and um, uh, yeah just worked to um, to put together a studio for myself and uh, uh, yeah here we are so presumably that would have been a bedroom studio or a uh, Absolutely, you know, whatever extra space you have, garage or whatever. Exactly. So uh, initially, I'd started uh, recording friends' bands in my bedroom, uh, and occasionally I'd go to their place and record there. Take the whole computer rig it was a lot harder thing back then. We didn't really have laptops that were capable of that. And um, what platform were you running then? Uh, PC. It was all all PC. Yeah, yeah. Which you're still running now. Yes, absolutely. Yep, for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it started with that. And then after, um, uh, after high school, I was, I ended up working, a, a getting into a job that I really hated the, um, the, I, I, I loved music, but this job had nothing to do with that. And it was, um, uh, just hated the job working for, a, for a, one of the world's worst bosses. And I thought, you know, I've got the gear because I'd always put the money into, you know, not buying the first thing I could afford, but waiting and getting something really good, saving up for it. And I hated this job. And I thought, well, why not just make a go of this? You know, why not try it? You know, see what happens. And well, 18 years later, here we are. So (laughs) chatting about this in London. Yeah, and say we're in your your brand new space. Mm -hmm. Now, presumably you didn't you know, this this place has been some time in the making, and we'll certainly get to that. Um, there will be photographs in the story below. Um, but why the move? Why the move from um, beautiful, sunny, spider-ridden ugh, Australia to... Okay, it is the exception rather than the rule, a very sunny... North London. Yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite nice and sunny in uh, in in here in the control room today. So that's nice. Yeah, um, nat- natural daylight through the skylights. Beautiful. Yeah, every room has uh, every room has uh, skylights. Uh, most rooms have two. A couple of rooms have one skylight. And uh, yeah, it's I love it. It's an it's a it's a nice change. Uh, so what what led here was so um, 
So in two, I started the business officially opened in 2001 in Australia, in mm-hmm. Sydney, Australia. Uh, and that was in, uh, as well, you asked before, actually, about, um, about uh, where it started. So started out in the bedroom. And then uh, my parents saw that I was quite serious about this. And they said, I was probably about 17 or something. They said, we'll give you half of the garage for, you know, to convert to a studio. So they had a carpenter friend come over. He put some walls in, lined it, and I had this room. And so I was rehearsing with my band. That's where I'd rehearse and record, do that. And then slowly ended up taking over the entire... The other the entire the one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Put a window in, you know, um, acoustically treated the other side of it. And uh, that was studio space I used for many years, actually. And, um, uh, yeah, so how did I get here? So in 2012... I was awarded a Winston Churchill uh, Fellowship um, for my work in audio engineering and music production. And that saw me um, travel to Europe for a six-week um, uh, research project. So mm-hmm. I spent a week in the south of France with Michael Brower working on um, uh, Mixed with the Masters. Yep. Uh, then I had 16 days traveling around Europe. I visited a whole lot of studios all, all around Europe and um, sat in on sessions, talked with people, um, other engineers, um, recording engineers, mixing engineers, mastering engineers. And then, as if that wasn't good enough, I went back down to, to the south of France for a, uh, a mix with the master session with Joe Ciccarelli. Um, loveliest guy, absolutely loveliest guy, very talented and loveliest guy. Um, and then, as if all of that wasn't enough, I then came over to London and spent two weeks in the studio with Alan Mulder and Flood that while they were working on uh, Fold's album, Holy Fire. So Alan was uh, finishing the mixing on that. He'd just come back from a holiday having just mixed the latest um, uh, Led Zeppelin record. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so I spent the time there and it's just kind of that, that's, that's how I'm here. Basically. I, um, I'd come back a few times in that, in that period. And, uh, I was, uh, I was thinking about, I'd been thinking about moving to Europe for a long time. I just, there's, it's just Europe, UK. I just like this part of the world. And, um, I, I dropped into, to Salt and Battery one day to go see Alan and, um, uh, I was walking through the hallway and I bumped into Flood. And Flood said, hey, Dax, how are you going? Oh, good, thanks. How are you, Flood? Really nice. Had a chat. He said, what, what's going on? I said, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking to move to to, to um, probably Germany. I'm thinking Berlin at this point, set up a studio and, and really focus on the mixing side of things, just get a smaller sort of space. And um, we talked a bit back and forth. And he said, he looked me straight in the eyes, he pointed his finger and said, you should move to London. And I said, well... No pressure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I said, well, I know uh, it's just, you know, there's, it'd be a lot cheaper to live in, in Berlin versus London and this and that. I'm not sure about this and that. Looked me in the eyes again, pointed his finger and said, you should move to London. So I, it kind of was resonating in the back of my head, of course. And um, uh, yeah, for, for a little while I thought about it. I went, you know what? I should move to London. <laughs> and so I did. So yeah, in, in uh, April of 2016, I put my entire life's everything, my career, my, my, my studio, all my worldly possessions into a shipping container and sent it to the other side of the planet to set up a studio complex. And here we are, 1,900 square feet later. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, before we get onto the studio, sure. did you, did you, so you've, you've come up through what I'm going to refer to as the old school studio process by, uh, by being the T but the T boy, the runner, the tape op, the assistant, the whatever you've come up through that. Or did you do a specific audio related qualification at any point? Did you? Well, as you know, qualifications in audio are an, 
are uh, a bit of an oxymoron at best. Yeah, it's the th- it's um, people who have absolutely no you know uh, on paper qualifications, maybe a hundred times more skilled than somebody who's got the you know the the freshest degree. You absolutely, know? It's, yeah. Uh, and it's all about it's it's really for me it's all about attitude, and uh, I, I find uh, with certainly assistance as well is attitude and attention to detail. That's that's the important thing, you know, more than. The bit of paper. Um, so I did study in uh, 2001. I uh, studied at a, a JMC Academy uh, private audio college in Sydney. Um, uh, did that, and then from there, I I decided I I felt basically while I was in the building, every millisecond that I was in the building for those nine months. I was working full-time and studying full-time. So I'd go to work in the morning. As soon as I finished work, run to the train station, jump on a train into the central Sydney um, and do and study from mm-hmm. 6 till 9 or whatever it was, uh, and then go home, go to bed, and start again, do the whole thing. So um, I did that for nine months. Every millisecond I was in the building, I was in pure heaven. It was absolute joy. Um, but it wasn't for until maybe a month or so after I finished. I kind of looked back on it and went, the skills that I got from that were not really worth what I paid for it. And that's something that I've always kind of struggled with, with a lot of those is, I mean, you need to have the, you know, the foundations that's, it's really important. And I think they're very good at giving you the technical, um, this is how a compressor works. This is not necessarily how you use a compressor. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's all very, it's all very well saying, you know, this is, this is the tech, the technology behind it, Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, but no one is going to teach you, how to use an 1176 on a kick drum. You, true, you true. do not learn that in a, in a college. You learn that by having a drummer in front of you and you think, I know, I'll use an 1176. Yep. I, I, I've never worked out why not. I've never worked but that, out. That's the thing. This is the, something that I find so interesting about the way that not all, but many educational, audio educational programs are run. You said, you know, you're, no one's ever going to teach you this. Why not? Why don't? Why doesn't somebody teach that? I don't know. Because when I was at college, it was very much a, the the phrase. Okay, I didn't. I didn't do a tonmeister. I didn't do one of the um, specific audio qualifications, SAE mm. or anything like that. But the phrase at my university was very much: "You get out what you put in." Now, mm-hmm. I think that's probably true about not just higher education or further education. Education, full stop. Yeah, yeah. You get out what you put in. Yep. Now, maybe I didn't ask the right questions to get them to uh, to show me how to use a compressor on mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But was there opportunity to do that? You see, for me, I just feel that this um, uh, actually ties in with something, funnily enough, which we can talk about later. Um, uh, why is there not a more focus and more of an opportunity to to actually further those really critical skills? Um, active listening, really, really important. I mean, yes, you need to know you need to know the foundational stuff. You need to know wavelength. You need to know you need to know what a compressor does. And this is what they explain. They explain what a compressor does. They don't explain how to use it, which is a really, really important difference. I mean, how many how many of uh, how many of your listeners uh, will say, "Yeah, I learned. I, I was taught what a compressor does, but I still don't fully understand." exactly what every parameter does and how each different compressor sounds and what are, what am I listening for and so that's the critical thing is the active listening you know what um, what are you actually hearing that and that for me is something that I feel mm. is is that spe- those specific practical elements are something that I really feel are missing from um, from a lot of audio education yeah. but they're all deliverable 
Yes, absolutely. Now, now I think you'll probably agree, uh, as both of us being um, mixed with the Masters alumni, mm-hmm. I am on the record as saying that week I spent in the south of France with Al Schmidt and Steve Jenowick, I probably learned more in that week than I learned on a three-year degree course. Mm-hmm. It's not a cheap endeavour mm-hmm. to go down there and drink French wine and eat and all the, the bread, French the, the food, amazing and... French bread they bring out every yep, day. Yep, um, it's hard. Man. Oh, it's hard. and you get to sit in a studio all day with a mixing stroke audio legend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I learned more in that seven days than I learned doing a three-year degree. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd probably agree. I, I think you could say that you might have learned more in the three-year degree, but would you have learned, did you learn more important, useful things in those seven days? Yes, the, the, by, by a country mile. Now, of course... As we all know, doing going to university, going on to college or whatever, mm-hmm. half of the experience is not in the classroom. It's about the growing as a person and growing as an individual. Absolutely. And let's let's not go down that road because that's trying to explain higher education to people who probably don't really care that much. Um, <laughs> but I think the the going to university is as important as the course that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I, I know I grew as a person you know, way beyond just the turning up and doing lectures and stuff like that. But there's all the socialization aspect as well. You know, you, you get to meet a, a, a diverse group of people who are probably interested in the same things as you. You start discussing things, you know, you've got these, a great forum for, for uh, it opens up thought because, you know, you're surrounded by people who are interested in the same things. You can have discussions about it. And I mean, you think about great philosophers, for example, you know, they didn't just sit there. Most of them didn't just sit there in a hole on their own. They were out talking with other philosophers and, and um, like, I think this about the sun and well, I think this about it, you know, mm. and then you, you, you further um, uh, knowledge by collaboration. Yes, definitely. So moving on a tad, um, we're now in the new space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you found it like this. Tell us a little no, bit about it was, it was a little bit sto- completely, the- totally empty. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a big space. You've got a lot of space. Yeah, it's 180 square meters and 1,900 square feet. Um, there are three control rooms, uh, two live rooms and a machine room and a workshop as well, pretty sizable workshop. Um, the, the studio space, uh, the, uh, the design was uh, by a guy named Jeff Headback, an American acoustician. He's done four or 500 studios in his lifetime, and uh, I've worked with him before in a studio spaces in Australia. Fantastic guy, really, really good to collaborate with, speaking of collaboration. Um, so when I got the space, um, big empty space, I um, did a little bit of demolition work and then uh, drew the entire space up in architectural CAD software, 3D CAD. From there, I, I knew I knew what sorts of rooms. Basically, this studio is something I've been designing somewhere in the back of my head for the last ten or fifteen years, really. And so, um, in that in that time, all these different ideas have kind of crystallized for what I actually wanted. What what do I want from a studio? So and, so, what do you want from a studio? Well, I knew that I wanted a dedicated. Um, uh, most of the work that I do, so I'm a record producer and a mixing engineer. Uh, I also do mastering and mastering engineer as well. 
Um, most of the work I do is mixing, and that's really my, my focus in, uh, in terms of, if you want to call it career focus, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, that's what it is for me. So I, I knew that I wanted to have an A1 um, control room. I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure that that was, uh, that was the number one priority. I also wanted to be able to, to record as well. So I needed to have a, another separate control room, no compromises um, from the, with the, the mixing and mastering control room. So a separate control room for, uh, for recording, which has nice big windows into the live rooms. So good line of sight. Um, and then um, nice big live room to, to be able to fit an entire band. The live room A is five and a half by 4.7 meters uh, with fairly sizable ceilings. And as you saw, the natural light, sunlight, um, which has an, a big window, which looks into live room B, which is uh, three by 2.7 meters. Um, again, natural light, that sort of thing. Um, and so really, uh, that, that was kind of the idea was I wanted to make sure that I had a no holds barred, um, control room one, and then, uh, and then a proper uh, tracking space, proper tracking spaces. Yes, you definitely do. (laughs) Well done. Um, (laughs) mission accomplished on that front, but we're, we're above a how can we delicately put it warehouse warehouse space yeah, yeah. so you, you've 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 filled quite literally filled the void yes yeah. in their ceiling yeah um, <laughs> and it, it, it's it's awesome it's it's beautifully quiet I mean <laughs> I always I almost want to say listen to that can't hear anything exactly um, <laughs> there there is no audible distractive noise the hvac system is also you know nothing absolutely at all and, and it's you know be- beautiful the the aesthetic is really nice thank you very you're much. very much you've gone very minimal other than possibly some of the largest monitors i've ever <laughs> seen in a in a studio tell us more about about the well what are they okay sure um so these are the the um, so in control room one we have a pair of the Duntech Crown Prince. Uh, they were later renamed to the Princess. Um, it's the same monitor. Uh, they are one point just under one point eight meters tall on the floor and on their stands they're they're quite towering. Um, I'm sure there'll there'll be a photograph below somewhere. Certainly, yeah. Um, and they are uh, yeah it's about two point two two point three meters. They're they're kind of. Uh, yeah, two giant towers at the front of the room, hmm. and so, they sound incredible. Well, yeah, the um, so there's a f- there's a few things with them. So John Dunlavey is an American uh, designer who um, well designed these and built them. Funnily enough, in Australia, he uh, he'd moved to Australia for I think he was there for about fifteen or twenty years or mm-hmm. something before he moved back moving back to America. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, so it's a five driver three way Diapolito array. And the crossovers are six dB per octave, so they're very smooth, very very smooth crossover points, mm-hmm. uh, which is part of the part of the, I guess, openness. You know, they have this real detail and openness without being. Some monitors I find, uh, generally smaller ones, I find that people are. Uh, a lot of designers would try to put a lot of high frequencies into the monitors to try and simulate detail. Mm-hmm. Um, th- that gets fatiguing very quickly. Im- the immediate feeling is, wow, that sounds really detailed. But actually, the more you try to work on it... It's it, hype's top end. It's, it's ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. It's not actually... It's Yeah, it's not actually true detail. 
Um, the other thing with them is that uh, everything about them from left speaker to right is matched um, incredibly. Uh, the the, the um, frequency response of the of the between the two speak between the left and right monitors uh, is within one uh, plus and minus one dB across the spectrum, which is extremely tight. Um, I mean, you you as you mentioned the, when we were having a little listen at the start, um, listening to the um, the stereo imaging, you know, the fact that you've got that pinpoint center image, yet everything on this, everything, you know, anything that's panned hard left or right, you can really feel mm. it out on the sides there. No, it, it sounds stunning in here. But you've really, you've gone very minimal approach. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no racks of outboard. There's no, mm-hmm. you, I'm, I'm assuming you are entirely in the box. Therefore. I'm 100% in the box. That's correct. Uh, I, um, I've, I've been like that for a uh, as long as I can remember, basically. Uh, I actually write a column uh, about it for Audio Technology magazine. Uh, I wrote um, yeah, a, f- a few columns for that uh, based on... Basically, the idea is... Um, so Thinking Outside the Box is the title of it. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea was how to get that analog sound um, in the box. And it's something that's kind of a, a specialty of mine, I guess you could say. It's um, uh, anyway, The first article starts off with explaining how, you know... If you want to understand how to create, recreate something, you have to know what's actually going on. So what is actually happening to our signals, electrically speaking, when we pass them through analog equipment? You know, two quick things. You know, through an analog console, you've got multiple um, coloration stages. Um, and then you're passing it through outboard equipment. You've got to, you're going to different pieces of equipment made uh, designed by different designers, different manufacturers, often different time periods, different components. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get different colorations, different sonic um, fingerprints, if you will. And all of that is an important, um, all of those details are important to getting that sound, you know, if we want to call it that sound. Um, and uh, yeah. But you, so you dropped, you dropped the bomb on me earlier, that mm-hmm. is you're using Reaper. Absolutely. That's right. So I started with, um, with Cakewalk Pro Audio 6 when I was in high school, mm-hmm. uh, moved to Cakewalk Sonar. I've used um, uh, Cubase um, SX1, 2, and 3, uh, moved to Samplitude. I was a beta tester for them for uh, about three years. Uh, and then I'd kept hearing all these great things about Reaper, and I thought, ah, oh, no, this is, you know, it was, at f- it was 40 US dollars for a personal license at the time. It's now gone up. To 60 US dollars. <gasps> I know, right? Uh, so a full commercial license is 225 US dollars, which is insane. And uh, I just thought it was a toy. I thought this is a garage band, you know, mm-hmm. competition. It's it's nothing. And I kept hearing good things about it. And I thought one day, I thought, you know, I've just got to try this. And I can't ever imagine going back. It sounds incredible. Um, it's incredibly flexible in pretty does anything you want. Um, the routing is just unbelievable, um, and it's really quick to work in it. It's uh, I, I I couldn't I can't imagine um, uh, I can't imagine falling in love with any other software more than uh, more than I have with Reaper. Yeah. So, but presumably you still use all the same um, plugins and goodies that the rest of us use. So yeah, so you still you still access to the are your Waves user? Are you a UAD two? So yes, yeah, so I'm I've a UAD. Uh, to OctoCard. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I use those. I'm a beta tester for FabFilter, for Eventide, 
Sound Toys have done SSL. Um, pretty, most name and uh, name and I've probably done beta testing for them. <laughs> and, you, and, and a so, lot of smaller developers but, too. But, but like the rest of us, you've probably got your ten. I'm going to say ten to fifteen. That's probably a high estimate for most of us. Go to plugins that you find you probably always use the same things in the same places. Or are you are you always trying to push your skill set and think? Do you know what I'm going to try this today? I'm going to try this one today. Or yeah, well, th- this is the thing. So when I'm when I do a mix, uh, the first mix is always an unattended mix. So I, I like to be able to spend a bit of time to really kind of poke around, so to speak, try out a few different uh, try out a few different options. And um, yeah, I've as you can probably see with the studio, I I do like to push myself. I don't I don't like to you know just do the same thing over and over yeah, again. Yeah, we'll talk about that bit in a minute. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so yeah, really, I, I just want to I want to be able to try just test some new things because a, a really important thing for me is that no no two bands are the same. And so treating two, even two bands within the same genre are not the same. So treating them the same way, like, oh yeah, this is my, this is the, my kick drum chain for, uh, for pop rock. And this is my uh, kick drum chain for heavy metal or whatever. It doesn't make sense to me. For me, it's just, you really need to focus. Um, every, every artist is different and you need to respect them in that. And in that way, you need to pay attention to what the, the, the songs actually demand. And um, for me, that's um, uh, that's really where I yeah it, that's really what I focus on. And so making sure that I am testing different things. Having said that, um, Fab Filter is used on every session. So Fab Filter Q2, their equalizer, mm-hmm. um, is actually set up as a default uh, on on the channel. I don't use it every time. It's not not the only EQ I use. There are some other stuff like I use occasionally. Um, there's some stuff from Tokyo Dawn Records, TDR, mm-hmm. uh, Tokyo Dawn Labs. Uh, there's some things from UAD that I really like as well. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those horses for courses kind of things, of course. There's some pretty great Eventide stuff and sound toys. I use a lot of sound toy mm-hmm. stuff as well. Do you have a particular reverb you kind of go for? Because it's one of those things I find... Um... I, I find I, I end up using the same re- the same plate reverbs on various things. I'm a, I'm a big reverb guy. It's something that um, something that I, again a focus for me on a mix is creating space. It's really important to me, and so um, I I want to create a variety of spaces. You know, I don't I, I want to again tailoring it to the artist and also the you know that yeah the variation, and so I use a lot of different reverb plugins. I'm a huge fan of the Valhalla stuff. Yep. Valhalla Room, Valhalla Vintage Verb, Valhalla Plate is excellent as well. Um, there's some an, a company I never know how to pronounce this, Ericon, E A R E C K O N. It's a French developer. Right. He's got Ear Reverb, and he's got um, a bunch of other great plugins as well. Some great um, delays and and all sorts of things. Um, I really like his stuff. Um, what other other reverbs? Um, what else? I'm just trying to think of. Um, I really like some of the 2C audio stuff. Mm-hmm. Ether uh, is great. Uh, B2 is great as well. Right. I think they've got a new plugin. I haven't tested it out yet, but I'm I'm uh, looking forward to testing. I'm not that familiar one. with that brand, so I'll have to um, check them out. Oh yeah, some very good stuff. Um, not the cheapest, but definitely very good quality. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, I guess that's probably that. They're they're probably some of the main ones that I use. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think I've probably got, I don't know, it's probably pushing somewhere between five and 700 plugins, and I probably use 20. 
I was born in 81, so internet was kind of a new thing when I was, um, uh, when I was in high school. And so, you know, VST plugins were, you know, become, were becoming mm-hmm. a thing and everybody was making them. There was, there were, I mean, everybody still makes them, but there were a lot of, a lot of things out there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they had a horrible GUI and they sounded amazing or no GUI at all, just, just knobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then others had these incredible immaculate, um, you know, GUIs that looked like you could reach out and touch them and they sounded terrible. And so... Uh, there was so much freeware available as well. It still is a lot of, I have to say the quality of freeware VSTs these days is just phenomenal. Absolutely incredible. Um, but back then, you know, lots of stuff available. And so I was, I thought, oh, I'll just get everything I can find. So I had a big folder full of all the compressors, maybe 200, 300 compressors, something like that. And then reverbs and EQs and delays and all these things. And then again, just like you, I found myself using the same ones over and over again. And to the point where it would act, I'd try to push myself and go, oh, I'll try this one and that one. And then I'd waste all of this time <laughs> trying to work out how this plugin, which I thought might be cool, worked. And some of them, you know, sometimes you discover a gem. A happy accident, yeah. Exactly. And other times you just wasted an hour. I still have quite a few plugins, but I would say that they are very carefully curated. I would use 90% of the plugins that I have. I mean, a standard session for me is around 100 120 tracks, that sort of thing. Right. Well, I would say 80 to 120 tracks, that sort of ballpark. And uh, again, other than something like FabFilter Q2, which is on a lot most tracks, mm-hmm. I, I do use a variety of things. And part of that was what I was uh, talking about before with um, how to get you know that sound, so to speak, is the idea of passing your signal through different DSP. Because just like, you know, different uh, designers of EQs and ha- hardware EQs, compressors, you know, reverbs, every designer has a different idea about how they want to do things. You know, what do they think is the right way to do something? And I think, you know, you know, everyone's got that one compressor. They go, that works. That one compressor is excellent on rock bass guitar. You know, you change the settings for each, you know, for each player, each song. But it's like that one has a sound that I like that really resonates with me for that role. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes it's not what the the designer had had planned it for. Um, you know, sometimes there's you know compressors that were designed to be you know a mastering compressor, for example. And I love them on vocals, like mm. the some of the Tokyo Dawn record stuff, to- Tokyo Dawn Lab stuff is just amazing. You know, on vocals, uh, on all sorts of things. But it's um, yeah. Yeah, I must admit, I, I tend tend to now if I'm looking at plugins, obviously with my Prozac Expert hat on. We get sent a lot of stuff, but if I'm the the plugins that that I buy are the ones I tend to be that are recommended mm-hmm. from people like yourself. So I should definitely check out those two um, C. Yeah, two C audio some really great reverbs there, absolutely. And the Tokyo Dawn stuff I, I, yeah. I've heard of, but I haven't tried. So yeah. definitely, I'll, I'll give them a, a. Well, the thing with the the Tokyo Dawn Lab stuff is uh, there are free versions of pretty much all the plugins, and they're not that they, they are cut down versions, but not they're not bare bones. They still have an excellent feature set. They sound great. Um, and then if you want to buy the full versions, they're like, don't quote me on this. I think they're between 30 and 50 euros in mm. the plugin, which is insane. Yeah. You know, um, there's another company called, uh, another German developer called, um, uh, Klanghelm, K-L-A-N-G. Yes. That, that have, yeah. Used, uh, yes. Tony Frenzel does some really fantastic stuff. And again, his plugins are so cheap. I think 29 euros and 49 euros and they just sound amazing and there are there are free versions which do 
um, you know, part of that, and you can at least try them out and see if you like the the tone of them. It's, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the demo the demo version, the restricted license, things like that, are always very very handy for actually working out what you want to buy yeah. and what you want to use. Exactly, that's right, that's right. So let's get a little bit back to we've we've talked about gear because mm-hmm. you don't use very much. You have a I'm assuming a fairly kick-ass PC down there, and oh, yeah. um, spec'd up to the eyeballs as as is, as is my because I'm now a Windows guy as well. Um, Congratulations on the move. Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 depending on if you're a Mac user or a PC user, I tend to say I've moved to the dark side. But, um, <laughs> well, but hey, look, they both they both they both do the job. It's it's. Um, yeah. well, I'm I not mean, sure in your DAW of choice. Does it make any difference? Yeah, exactly. I okay, mean, I have to remember to switch my fingers around for the keyboard shortcuts. The software the, for that. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> but I'd get really confused then. Um, but let's talk about about the studio because we're going to put some pictures up of the space the empty space but you didn't get builders in to do this and you've kind of alluded to the workshop down the end of of your Mm -hmm. facility this is all built by your your fair and now somewhat um callous ridden mitts i'm gonna get i'm gonna suggest by the by the work that's gone into this place was was this something that you did I don't think anyone takes this on because just because they fancy doing it. It's more of a necessity. But did you have the skill set or are you one of these people who can generally turn their hands to most things practical or Yeah, so I'm I'm self-taught. So basically, uh I do woodwork, metalwork, electronics, a uh, little bit of textiles, um a bit more, quite a lot more now that uh, now that this is <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of fabric <laughs> in the studio here. So um yeah, it's been a lot more of that. Um and so yeah, with the, I mean, for metalwork, for example, I weld also. So this desk is is, a, is one of my pieces. Um, uh, I, I actually designed Alan Mulder's uh, uh, computer console desk in mm-hmm. his uh, his studio. Um, I'm doing one for Strong Room soon, so as well, it was a bit of fun. Um, so yeah, it's just always. I, I just I like working. I like creating things, and part of that is working with my hands as well. Mm. So, uh, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't look like a self build. It Thank looks <laughs> it looks like a very professional installation. I mean, it's that. But you've built everything, haven't you? Down to the, the yeah. I laid the floor, the the welded the handles, designed all of that interior design for it as well. So it it yeah. looks ace. I mean, and so the pictures I'm pretty sure will reflect that. It it does look incredible. So tell us a little bit about some of the other things you've got going on, like sure. mixed direction and. Um, I know you do a little bit of, um, should we call it lecturing rather than teaching? Yeah, yeah, guest lecturing, that sort of thing. So I, I've done guest lectures for many years of back in Australia at a, uh, at a bunch of different um, uh, audio colleges. And uh, I got into it. I I was asked at first. This is the fun. This is a crazy thing about this. If I um I didn't enjoy um I didn't enjoy high school very much. I'd already decided by about sixteen, yeah, maybe even before that. Um, that I knew I wanted to do music for a living, and then I kind of lost interest in high school, to be completely honest. Um, and uh, no, I'm only laughing because it's a very similar story. Yeah, well, and it, <laughs> and it wasn't that I lost a passion for uh, for learning. I love learning. I absolutely love that. But it was I felt that the skills that I personally was be- that, that that I was being taught were not uh, were not really what I wanted, um, where I wanted to go with my life, essentially. Um, and so, uh, English was, a, was a, um, was a, 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 you know, one of the classes I, I, li- I disliked the most. And the, the crazy part of all of this is I kind of, um, if you had asked me when I finished high school, if I would ever be 
a teacher? I would say no, never in a million years. Um, and if you'd ever asked me if I would be a writer, again, never in a million years would I be interested in that. Uh, and then somehow, just through through music, actually, all both of these things have have become you know, part of my life. So I got into the guest lecturing thing through. I was actually asked initially if I would uh, come in and, and do do a guest lecture at a at Canberra Institute of Technology, uh, and uh, from there I just really I really enjoyed it because I got to speak um, you know, to the students and find out afterwards. I talked to them about about the course, and they identified a lot of the similar sort of things that similar shortcomings that I had experienced, and they are things that are largely they are difficult to to deliver. In a, sta- in a traditional um, uh, tertiary education uh, system, you know, it's hard to have enough studio time to devote to every student. You know, even in small groups, it's hard to, to do that. And it's hard to find enough, um, you know, people who are capable of teaching that, those, those topics to the degree that I think is necessary. Uh, and that's really... It was the whole mixed direction uh, masterclass thing actually came from from that. You know, it was the idea that this is the course that I wanted to take that when I was first starting out. I'm completely happy with my current skill set, always working to improve myself. What I know is that I would have been at this point much sooner had I had somebody to to you know to actually learn from. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm self-taught, so. Other than that two weeks in the studio with Alan and Flood in 2012, um, I've taught myself everything. And this has just been, you know, this, this is kind of, it's a bit of the story of my life. So certainly in terms of the building, you know, woodwork, metalwork, welding, all that stuff. The whole thing with Mixed Directions, I wanted to be able to deliver something which would be the course that I would have wanted to attend. You know, it's something that um, I feel is, like I said, very difficult to administer in, in a tertiary education system. It's extremely important. Because mixing uh, is not my strong yeah. suit. It's something I definitely need to work on and something yeah. I, you know, I, I, I would say I struggle. Mm-hmm. I know the sound I want to get, yeah. but I don't always get it. Yeah. Well, you've, you've actually solved half the problem already. Uh, and that is that you have a vision for what you're trying to go for. It's when you just, if you start mixing and you don't know where your end goal is, like, you're just wonder, you're just going for a wander, you know. To at least have, I mean, sure, you may not be uh, positively sure exactly where you're going to end up, but you know which direction you're walking, and you know when you start walking one way, oh, this looks good. These trees look great. Let's keep going that way. You know, you can or you go, oh, I don't know about this. This is looking a bit muddy. Let's go a different direction. And so you're at least able to know which direction you're heading. So here's one: Are you an ex? Are you for or against reference tracks? I think they're great. I think it's really important. So they do two things. One is they can help you to continue in the direction that you're heading. Or two, they can actually inform you about a way you don't want to go. Like even within one mix, you might say, oh, I really like, for example, the way the drums are mixed. I think they really that would really suit the song I'm working on. But the guitars just don't match this song whatsoever. I would want to do something completely different to that. Yes, they can be very handy. In mastering, it's almost um, uh, essential. Basically, it's essential. I think it's uh, the human brain is a is a difference engine. It doesn't when we're terrible. Like you can say this room is warmer than that room, or this color is brighter than that color, or you know this is further to walk than that. But you can't say this room is eighteen degrees and this room is twenty five degrees. You you can't say with any certainty the exact measurement because we are uh, we are 
relative creatures, not absolute creatures. That's mm. the way our brains work. And so it's even though you know, I've, I've mixed, on these, uh, mixed and mastered on these monitors for uh, eight years now, I, I believe. And again, through my uh, Cranesong Head 192, which I've had since 2006, 2005. Again, something that I know back to front. And you built the amps as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That's right. They're two um, Hypex monoblocks uh, with uh, um, linear power supplies in them. Um, to say that you're quite handy and quite hands-on, I think is possibly an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Thank you. So basically, the mixed direction class—it's a—it's a masterclass seminar, and the and attendees will get to see two songs mixed in a day. I walk through the process of of using compression, EQ, reverb, all of these things to create a mix that will really, really serve the song, really benefit the artist's creative intention. That—that's the important part here, creative intention. So, and the materials so, provided by yourself—you've got uh, tracks that. That's right. So um, I'll be choosing two songs uh, to mix two completely different genres uh, to show, you know, variety of things. So it'll be something for everyone, basically. Um, and one thing that I think, again, is quite important is that this, this seminar is done differently to the way other seminars are sometimes done, um, which is uh, like a mixed deconstruction. So mix deconstructing a mix, you know, you get to understand, you get to he- see, you know, the individual the processing on the vocal chain, the drum bus, things like that. But what it doesn't teach you is how to how to get there. And so the whole idea, again, something that I would have wanted to, to experience myself was to see that process, to see, okay, let's try this compressor on the vocals, this other compressor and another one and go, okay, this is the one I want to use and this is why. So it's not just I chose this compressor for this track. It's I tried these ones and I decided that this was the best one for this purpose, and that again I feel is a is a really important thing that you that don't you don't often get to see. And something that comes at the end of the course, uh, included in the cost, I'll actually give one to one mix revision and feedback to each of the attendees via email. So, go you do the course, you go away, you mix a song, send that song to me. I'll say, yeah, that's great. Maybe you could add a little bit of this on the bass guitar, or, or maybe trim the piano back a little, or whatever it happens to be. They go away, make those changes, send it to me again for this one song, and for up to a month, I'll go back and forth and help them to really shape that. So just to make sure I'm cementing the 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 experience, the knowledge that they've gained from the course. So is that something that's ongoing? Is it starting soon? It's presumably to be based here. That's right. So right here where we're we're sitting at the moment in Control Room One. Uh, so it'll be based here. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, I work 100% in the box, and so. Everything that every, everything that'll be taught in the classes is around how to get this sound, how to get that analog sound, the punch, the character, the width, the depth, all within your DAW. You don't have to go and buy, you know, drop a hundred thousand pounds on a massive console. You don't have to do that. I mean, do that but if you want those, to. If that's all your those workflow. techniques that work in mm-hmm. the box also work out of the box. Absolutely, they do. Absolutely, they do. It's um, yeah, understanding how, what's happening to your signal in the analog domain and applying that in the box. But it's still the same techniques in the end. It's knowing how how to marry parts together. Something that, that I've, I guess a quote that I've said numerous times is, does it serve, is a question, does it serve the song? You know, say you're in the studio recording and the guitarist says, um, I don't know, like, hey, let's, I think we need a 12 minute guitar solo. You know, instead of saying, that's a silly idea because that's obviously that is a ridiculous idea. But if someone suggests something, I'll, I'll pose the question, 
does it serve the song? What is the function of that suggestion that's been made? Why, why are we doing this? And if it's, if it's anything other than it serves the song, then it shouldn't be done. You know, should we, you know, how can we make the song more marketable? You know, let's not think about marketable. Let's think about making a great song because in the end, the songs that, that have stood the test of time are not the songs where people have said, uh, okay, let's think about all of the different things that people like and cram them all into one song. How can we make it popular? They've well, said, let's, let's make one, something different, yeah, interesting. One of the most famous songs that, that all, I, I always use in those sort of examples is Bohemian Rhapsody. Yep. yep. Um, let's face it, a more commercially, potentially commercially viable song mm-hmm. you could not write. You could, oh yeah, um, with the, the new movie coming out, Fairly shortly, Bohemian mm-hmm. Rhapsody looks really interesting. I'm, I'm really keen to see it. Oh, I should check it out. But there's, um, I, I saw a trailer, a bit where the guy playing Brian May says, "So what happens next?" And the guy saying, playing Freddie says, "Oh yes, we go into the operatic section." And Brian then goes, "Yes, because of course, of course, we go into the operatic." That's an obvious section. next step, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but it, it's kind of done them all right on yeah. that, that particular track. You know, yeah, it, they, it did they, okay. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think they'd be happy with themselves. Yeah. Yeah, all the way, all the way to the bank, ching <laughs> and back. Yeah, <laughs> but so is, is the co- the course is happening here. Is That's it, right. It's going to be a so a, a part time thing or a weekly so thing. The or idea, a... the first one, ha- we're we're looking at scheduling the first one for June, late June, early July. Um, uh, but basically, uh, it will be an ongoing thing. So I would say two between two and four of them a year. We have to just see how um, you know, see what the interest is like. But basically, two to four a year. They're um, small classes, so ten to ten to twelve people in the class, uh, and it's um, there isn't a little application process for it. So you need to go to the website and submit, you know, why you would like to attend and a little showreel of your of your information. And tell us the website. Uh, it's mixdirection.com, M-I-X direction.com. Uh, yeah. And obviously there's a charge for it, but That's you know, it's going to be based here. Uh, if you are London-ish based, certainly it's not a difficult part of the world to get to. No, it's, that's one of the great, one of the things that I, I, I spent a long time trying to find this location for the studio is something that wasn't, you know, in the middle of nowhere. It's it's easy to find, you know, it's easy to find a big, a big uh, space in central London if you're happy to spend a million pounds a week in rent, you know, um, but finding something that was a good balance of, I mean, w- this is Tottenham, so it's Seven Sisters, it's five miles from the centre of London. It's mm. easy to get to, overground, underground, national rail, buses. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's quite easily accessible, that's right. What's the place called? Puzzle Factory Sound Studios. And you can be found at? Puzzlefactory.uk. There we go, there's the plug. Dax, it has been an absolute pleasure to chat. Um, thank you for inviting us up uh, and showing off. My pleasure. Thank you. Showing off the studio and the build and everything. Uh, absolutely incredible job. I wish you uh, continued success. I think is a safe way of putting it. Thanks, James. Thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed that out there in podcast land. My name's James Ivy, and we'll see you again very soon for some more Gear Talk. Mm-hmm.